0: If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew, chapter 6. Tonight, we're moving ahead in our study uh, through the Lord's Prayer, what has come down to us known as the Lord's Prayer. You may have heard it in other traditions referred to as the Our Father, even in Latin as the paternoster, meaning Our Father, just taken from the first two words of the prayer. It's a prayer that's recorded for us. Uh, in two different places in the Gospels, most fully here in Matthew chapter 6, which is why this is the version we're using on a regular basis. But it's also recorded again for us in Luke chapter 11, uh, just in abbreviated form. We will, from time to time throughout this study, make reference or compare it to the, 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 the gospel, a gospel account of Luke Uh, for uh, different reasons. Sometimes it it words a phrase just a little bit differently, and it's a noteworthy difference. Um, But most of the time, we're gonna stay here in Matthew chapter six. It'll be our primary text. We've already been uh, two weeks already in this study. Uh, We began with the opening invocation, our Father in heaven. That's the opening invocation, meaning that's how we're calling upon the Lord in this prayer, our Father in heaven. And then last week, we looked at the first of the seven petitions, seven requests that this prayer is asking. The first three have to do with what we're asking uh, in reference to God and His name, and, and, uh, and, and it's a Godward focus. But then the last four are going to have to do with uh, what we're asking Him to do for us and, and how we're to treat each other. But if you and we missed we, we last week studied the first of those. Hallowed be your name. We began with our Father in heaven. The last week was hallowed be your name. If you missed either one of those two, if you're just jumping in this study uh, tonight for the first time and you want to see what we said in the in the first two sessions, you can go to any of our uh, social media platforms, Lakeview College Ministry, uh, either you know Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, YouTube. Just search uh, at Lakeview AU or on YouTube, just type in Lakeview College Ministry. Our channel should come up first thing, and you can take a look at those first two sessions if you missed them or if you want to see them again. But uh, back to the the Lord's Prayer, there are a lot of prayers, thankfully, recorded for us in the New Testament, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in fact. Uh, But this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is unique in, in a sense because it's not merely a prayer that is recorded for us like the others. It is that, but it's not merely that. Um, but it, this is a prayer in which the Lord Jesus specifically instructs us to pray prayers like this. Uh, Matthew 6, 9 says, Our Father, uh, or he says, uh, Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Pray like this. And, and or when Luke records this, in Luke chapter eleven verse two, Jesus introduces it this way: that when you pray, say this. And in fact, uh, that is not just an instruction; that's a command. When it says "say this" in in Hebrews, it's I mean in in Greek in Hebrews in Greek it's legate it's it's say that come I command you say this. And so uh, this is a Holy Spirit inspired prayer recorded for us in in the Scripture, just like many of the other prayers by God's grace in Scripture. But it goes beyond them because we're instructed, commanded to pray this prayer and to pray prayers like it. So if it's imperative for us to pray it, then it's also imperative on us to understand this prayer so that when we pray it and pray prayers like it in obedience to Jesus' command, Uh, we're not only praying with a whole heart, but we're praying with a clear mind. So today we come to the second petition of this prayer. And this second petition, honestly, I think says more in just three words and packs more into three words than any of the other petitions we're gonna come across. Your kingdom come, your kingdom come. So before we begin thinking about that petition in particular, uh, let's 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 read our passage together. Just for a little context, we're going to start in Matthew chapter six, verse five. We're not going to study those those verses per se, but it's just always nice to get a little context uh, to the passage we're going to study. Matthew chapter six, verse five, and we'll read through the end of the Lord's Prayer in verse thirteen. And there Jesus says, "And when you pray." And forgive us our debts as we forgive those or have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then footnoted a doctology, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That's the word of the Lord. Let's let's pray and ask his blessing for the study of it. Father, thank you so much for this this word. And as we pray every time we gather, that we, we want to confess that Our faith and our belief that this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Father, I pray that you would give us minds to understand the truth that we come across in in these words, especially in the phrase, your kingdom come tonight. And Father, I pray that you would give us hearts to embrace the truth that that we understand with our minds. And would you give us wills to obey whatever it is you call us to do? Give us all ears to hear, and please give me the help that I need to teach. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the focus tonight is going to be on the first part of verse 10, um, that phrase, your kingdom come, uh, in in uh, in English and really in the Greek, just three, three words more or less. But at the outset, before we get into that particular phrase, I want you to notice something else. I want you to notice how uh, there is a logical link between the opening phrases and opening words of this prayer. It begins by addressing our Father in heaven and, and asking first that his name would be, as it puts it, hallowed or honored or revered, honored as holy, recognized as holy, set apart from ours, high and exalted. How is that gonna happen? What will it look like? What will it take for his name to be hallowed in the earth? It will take his kingdom coming. That's, that's why, in order for your name to be hallowed, would your kingdom come, please? And then what will that look like when it happens? His will on earth being done as it is in heaven which when his earth when his kingdom comes and his, and thereby his will is being done in earth is being done in earth as it is in heaven what is that that's another way of saying his name is being hallowed so there's a circular nature to these opening requests of the lord's prayer so as we move through i say that to say this as we move through these requests don't see each one as an island unto itself as if it's unrelated to the ones that come before it or after it. No, there's a there's a connection between them. So as we come to the next phrase and the next phrase, don't forget the phrases that we've already looked at before or what's coming up ahead. Try to anticipate what's coming up. And that's why I encourage you too, to be reading and studying this prayer on your own. Try to get your hands on good materials, listen to good podcasts or find good articles or commentaries or books on the Lord's Prayer and, and do some study of your own that way, when you come to it, and you, well, first of all, you're better prepared to anticipate what's coming up, even if we haven't covered it here in CBS yet. And you'll just get more out of it when I when I talk because you've already given it a lot of thought yourself. But uh, but in in and in that vein, I want you to notice about connecting to what came before. Notice that the prayer began with Our Father in Heaven. And now we're only in the second petition, and we're asking, or we in this request, we're realizing that our father is also a king who has a kingdom. So we're moving categories almost from a familial family uh, sort of imagery, our father in heaven, to a royal uh, imagery, our father is also a king who has a kingdom. Well, to get a good understanding of this petition, your kingdom come, Really, I want to ask two simple questions. They're two very important questions that get right to the heart of understanding this, this request. One, what is God's kingdom? I mean, if we're going to ask for his kingdom to come, we first need to be understanding what we're asking for. What is his kingdom that we're asking to come? How does not only, not only Jesus, but how does the whole Bible from beginning to end uh, explain the kingdom of God to us so that we have a full understanding of what this kingdom is that we're asking to come? And secondly, what does it mean for us to pray for his kingdom to come, right? What, what are we asking God to do when we say your kingdom come? And, and does it imply that there's anything that we should do for his kingdom to come? If we get those two things straight in, in our minds, I think we're in a good petition. Uh, I've said that word so many times. We're in a good position um, to pray this prayer with a, with a whole heart and with a clear mind. That being said, let's dive in and address the first and the most fundamental of these two questions. What is God's kingdom? If we're gonna pray for it to come, we need to know what it is. Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom of God, or sometimes you'll see it phrased as the kingdom of heaven, especially in Matthew's gospel. It goes back and forth referring to it as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Uh, In my understanding of scripture, those are not two separate things. They're two ways of referring to the same thing. Uh, So just in Matthew's gospel, we're in Matthew 6, but if we flip back over to Matthew chapter 3, there you see John the Baptist right before Jesus comes on the scene. You have the forerunner, the last uh, prophet before the Christ came, John the Baptist, and he in chapter 3 verse 2 uh, says, he tells the crowds, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the message that John the Baptist was bringing. But then you just flip over one chapter and 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 you have Jesus after his 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. you have Jesus, we're told in, in Matthew 4:17, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying the same thing that John the Baptist had said in the last chapter, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And and, and when you come to passages like, let's just flip later in Matthew chapter 13, when you come to that chapter in particular, uh, you have Jesus telling a whole series of parables, one right after, right after, right after, right after another, uh, specifically to put our focus on the kingdom and what it is like. It would be very fruitful to 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 move through every one of these parables in Matthew thirteen. It would take a very long time to do that, but you have you have in this one uh, this one chapter you have the parable of the sower, you have the parable of the weeds, you have the parable of the mustard seed, you have the parable of the leaven, you have the parable of the hidden treasure, you have the parable of the pearl of great value, and the you have the parable of the net. And if you were counting, that's seven parables in a row explaining what the kingdom is like and how valuable it is and that we should desire it and we should seek it, which is also one of the most well known sentiments and verses in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 6.33, when Jesus said, But seek first his kingdom, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So we're we're to to seek his kingdom. With with all our life and all our desire, but we still need to be clear on what it is we're seeking after when we're seeking after his kingdom, when we say that. Because some may think of different things, uh or, or it's or just not be clear on when they when they read what scripture says about about the, the kingdom, they may come away thinking different things because it takes some careful thought to understand what the Bible's talking about in the different ways it talks about the kingdom. Um, we may not be clear on how it all fits together for, because, for example, in Luke four 43, uh, we're told that Jesus came to preach the good news of the kingdom. And in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus told the unbelieving Pharisees that his miracles, the miracles that he was doing, the casting out of demons and healing the sick, was proof to them that the kingdom had come upon them, and he tells he tells his disciples in Luke chapter ten verse nine, the kingdom has come near you. <laughs> um, and yet in John eighteen thirty six, Jesus plainly said, "My kingdom is not of this world." So the, you read the scriptures, and, we, and it's clear that by faith in Christ, believers are already a part of the kingdom, and yet we're still looking forward to the kingdom, and in this second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we're asking for his kingdom to come. So we're already a part of something that we're, that is still ahead of us, and, is, and and we're asking to come? I mean, th- how do you put all that together? How does, how does the rest of Scripture say uh, that we should put all of this together? What does, what does the Old Testament say? How does all the Scripture fit together to give us a little background to this notion of the kingdom to help us understand what it is and what Jesus is saying. So in my understanding of what Jesus and the rest of the scriptures mean by the kingdom of God, uh, in my understanding of that, I have been helped more almost more than almost anybody else in understanding that, helped by Graham Goldsworthy I, uh, as much as anyone. Now, others have helped me understand, but... If I had to pick out one person who's been extraordinarily clear and helpful on understanding the kingdom and the kingdom of God in Scripture, Graham Goldsworthy, G R A E M E Goldsworthy. Uh, he's an Australian uh, theologian. Two books in particular he's written that have been tremendously influential in my understanding of these things. One of the books is called, it's just called Gospel and Kingdom. Gospel and Kingdom by Graham Goldsworthy. Uh, A lot of what I'll say tonight about the kingdom of God, I've I've gleaned from that book, Gospel and Kingdom. And the second book I want to commend to you uh, is called According to Plan. According to Plan, uh, subtitled, The Unfolding Revelation of God in the Bible. And that's a book that just very clearly uh, explains the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament and how the Bible tells one overarching story uh, centered on Christ. Anyway, Graham Goldsworthy, tremendously helpful. And, uh, and, and like I said, to begin thinking about Jesus and what he means and the Bible means about the kingdom of God, here's what Goldsworthy says in that book, Gospel and Kingdom. He writes, and I quote, as in any kingdom, as in any kingdom, there's a king who rules a people who are ruled, and a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. So put it another way, he says, the kingdom involves God's people in God's place under God's rule. Keep that that pattern in mind. God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. Uh, that is going to be a pattern that we see in the Bible from beginning to end. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. And if we, if we take a walk through uh, the Old Testament, we'll, we'll turn to a few passages or think about a few passages. If we take a walk through the Old Testament, uh, we see the kingdom of God revealed to us according to that pattern in, in types and shadows. In other words, it's giving us a picture of it, but it's not the real thing. The real thing will come later, but we get pictures of it in the Old Testament according to that, that pattern. So following Goldsworthy's outline, the kingdom's pattern, God's people and God's place in God's, under God's rule, that pattern is established as early as Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So you have, you have God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place in the Garden of Eden, and in that place, it's the, it, God's place is not just a physical location, Garden of Eden, but what did they experience in that place? The undisturbed, unbroken presence of God in his favor and blessing, right? So God's people in God's place of blessing and favor and rest, and they are under God's rule. God gave them a law to, 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 uh, as Lord over them as his creatures that they were to live by, live in obedience to, in that garden and thereby to continue to experience God's blessing and favor. You may eat of all the fruit of this, of this garden, but of the tree, of that one tree, you shall not eat for the in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So blessing for obedience, but a sanction clearly given for their disobedience. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. How did that turn out for them? How did that turn out for Adam and Eve? They They ate of that fruit, they sinned, and as a result, he said, In the day you eat of it you shall surely die. They died spiritually that day, spiritually separated from God. And as a as a as a physical uh representation of that, they were banished from the garden. They were banished from that place of blessing, from the presence of God. They were cast east of Eden. And east of Eden is where we we have all lived until this very day. We all all come into this world. We are born into this world east of Eden, outside the place of God's blessing and favor, away from the presence of his blessing and away from the presence of his fellowship. So in this way, as you proceed through the storyline of the Bible, you had the kingdom pattern clearly revealed in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, but the fall into sin disrupted and corrupted the kingdom as it's proceeding through the Bible. Uh, God's people, Adam and Eve, no longer in the place of God's blessing and rebelling against God's rule, and their descendants do the same. But the whole storyline of the Bible is about the restoration, not only of this kingdom pattern in earthly ways, but ultimately the, the, the perfect reality of it uh, the the perfect reality that these Old Testament pictures, types and shadows are pointing forward to all all along. So still in the early stages of the Old Testament, God and his grace did not, did not ever completely abandon uh, his people after Adam and Eve sinned. But even when in their own, even in the same chapter that they sinned, he gave the first promise of restoration in Genesis 3.15, a promise to redeem them and to crush the head of the serpent. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, you know, when you're studying Genesis, it begins at creation and it moves at warp speed for 11 chapters. I mean, it is skipping time at warp speed for the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But when you get to chapter 12, it's like it slams on the brake because it it finally comes to the man through whom God is going to work and continue His work of leading to the Savior, uh, and that is Abraham. You get to Abraham in chapter 12. And with Abraham, you had the pattern established uh, in Adam and Eve, but now the kingdom is promised. The restoration of the kingdom is promised with Abraham. The pattern is still the same, but here it is promised to be restored in fuller measure. So God's, so God's people, God's place under God's rule, God's people, when you come to Abraham, God's people are Abraham and his descendants. And who would his descendants be? The nation of Israel. God, that's God's people. Um, and by the way, when it talks about um, Abraham's descendants and they're part of this people of God, uh, it says in Genesis seventeen six kings shall come from you not only shall your offspring be as numerous as the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore not only will you have a multitude of descendants but kings shall come from you and that's foreshadowing not only David but ultimately Jesus Christ so you have God's people Abraham and his descendants from whom kings would come and and beginning with Abraham God's place for them is the promised land right And they, so that the the land of Canaan, and they were to to live in that place as his people. They were to live in his promised land under his rule. So God had promised in Genesis 17 7, he promised them, I'll be a God to you and you will be my people, right? So they are his people. But in Genesis 17 1, he tells them, walk before me and be blameless. And in Genesis 17, 9, you shall keep my covenant, which first and foremost in that chapter is uh, you shall circumcise every male child. And, and that's the sign of your obedience to this covenant that you're to keep with me. So walk before me and be blameless, keep the sign of my covenant. And if anyone does not do that, in other words, if God's people in God's place begin to rebel against God's rule, it says in Genesis seventeen fourteen that that person will be cut off from the people and will be cut off from the land. Just complete disinheritance of God's blessing, right? They they are no longer considered God's people. They are and and they are they are removed from God's place of blessing. So the kingdom promise though begins with Abraham. It's given greater clarity when you come to Moses, because when you come to Moses, it seems like it's a new time altogether and there is another covenant given. But, to, but in reality, it's almost like it's an extension of the same covenant because it's given to the same people, Abraham's descendants, Israel. It's given, uh, and those people are in the same place or promised the same place, the promised land. And they are under the same rule it's just more and it's just a more specific law given to them and that's the same blessings for obedience. you remain in the land and experience God's blessing but it's the same sanction for disobedience. you're cut off from the people and disinheritance from the land of God's favor. Well as you as you read the story of the Old Testament, Moses, isn't even down yet from the mountain with the with the Ten Commandments that the people were rebelling against God in sin, and this would be a constant reality, clearly de- demonstrating that the, the Old Testament pictures of the kingdom uh, of Israel that even it wasn't the the ultimate reality. It wasn't the final word. It wasn't the 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 true version of the kingdom that the Bible was going to land on, that even the Old Testament kingdom of Israel was just a type and a shadow of the greater kingdom that was coming. But even still, uh, looking forward to that that greater kingdom, we've seen that the pattern was established with Adam and Eve. The kingdom was promised with Abraham and given greater clarity in Moses. Moses. But then you move ahead in, in, in uh, Scripture and the kingdom is foreshadowed even more clearly in David and Solomon with those two, those two kings in particular. Because in those two kings in particular, God's earthly promises to Abraham, to Abraham of descendants of, and from whom kings would come, their kings, and, and land and blessing, fruitfulness. All those promises that God gave to Abraham under David and Solomon came to their greatest fruition and their greatest fulfillment. Sure, before they got here, God had already fulfilled the land promise to Abraham as early as Joshua. Here's what we read in Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it. And they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Who were their fathers? Abraham. For the Lord had given, had given. I say, not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And here's this, here's this last sentence. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. That was as early as Joshua. That was true then. But from that point, even when you moved to, from Joshua to David and Solomon, that, 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 those promises found even fuller and greater uh, fruition under those kings. God had promised Abraham not just a land to be the place of his blessing, but again, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in heaven. Look up and see if you can count the stars. And as the sand of the seashore to be his covenant people. And in 1 Kings 4, verse 20, 1 Kings 4, verse 20, this is under Solomon's reign as king. We are told in that chapter and verse, let me find it, um, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand of the sea. Why do you think it chose that language, that phrase? Because it's echoing back to the promise made to Abraham. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Under, under David and even more under Solomon uh, is the fullness of, of, of this promised kingdom that's coming the pattern there of God's kingdom is still the same. God's people is still Israel, as numerous as the sand of the sea. But now, now, and this is a point you need to hear, but now under David and Solomon and all the kings that came after them, now God's people are represented by a king. They are represented by a king. In other words, God's blessing on the people or his curses on the people is ultimately based upon the obedience or disobedience of their king. I cannot stress to you how important this is and how it's going to come up later. Remember this. God's God's people is still Israel at this point, and they are represented by a king. God's place is still the same, the promised land, which under David and and Solomon is expanded even beyond the land of Canaan. And so they were God's people still in God's place, the promised land, and they were still under God's rule. Um, Again, all the people were to walk in obedience to God's law. The law of Moses was still in effect. They were all to walk in obedience to God's law, but they were also still represented by their king. And this was anticipated Even in the law of Moses, if you have a Bible, if you want to flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 17, Deuteronomy 17, let me just read to you what the law said. The law anticipated that Israel would later have kings and it has specific laws for that king. Look at Deuteronomy 17 beginning in verse 14. God said through Moses, he told the people of Israel, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and and then say, I will set a king over me. Like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your own brothers shall shall set set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. See, this is where Solomon would later go astray, and it's after his reign that the kingdom divides. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. Now listen to this part. And when he sits on his throne, when the king of Israel sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book of the copy of this law. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart, the king's heart, may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to, or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. All right, so even when they put a king over him, the king is to write a copy of this law and he is to obey it on behalf of, of all the people, as, or as a representative of all the people. And notice that it says of him, it puts on the king uh, the, the obligation uh, to obey or disobey on behalf of all the people because notice that it says in verse 20, the, notice the implication of verse 20, that last verse we read, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or hand or to the left so that he may continue long in the land, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel, implying that if he does this, if he obeys the law, his kingdom will be prolonged in the land for generations. But if he disobeys, the opposite will happen. Disinheritance from the land, people will be scattered God's people in God's place under God's rule will be no more. The kingdom will be broken. And we see that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament. And that earth, that earthly Old Testament type and shadow of the picture of the, of the kingdom, it was not the real thing and it broke. The people rebelled, right? And they went into exile. God's people were, were, were exiled from God's place and scattered abroad among the nations that ruled them. And they were still rebellious against the Lord. God's people was no more in that way, in an earthly way, uh, no longer in God's place and rebelling against God's rule. So the people of God fell under the judgment of God in this Old Testament walk. And they were sent out of God's place of blessing in the promised land into exile for consistent rebellion against his rule over them. Um. So the, let's just rehearse where we are. The pattern of God's kingdom, God's people and God's place under God's rule. That, has been, that pattern has been in place since Adam and Eve. Uh, but we could only glimpse faint shadows of that kingdom in the Old Testament. Of This is a picture of something good. If it would just work, this can't be the real thing because it fails so much. It's always looking forward to something better must be coming. And, and even the later prophets in the Old Testament, after the kingdom divided, went into exile, even when they came back to the land under Nehemiah and Ezra and all those and the prophets of those days, they knew that coming back to the land, this isn't the real thing. We're still ruled, We're in the land, but we're ruled by another. It's, even the prophets of that, they were looking for a better day coming, a better kingdom coming, still prophesying about this kingdom that's coming in a better one. Uh, so all that you have in the Old Testament, it gives us a clear picture of what we should expect in the New Testament, a, a clear pattern of what we're looking for in the New Testament, but in an even better way than what we saw in these Old Testament types and shadows. And as we've already seen when we come to the New Testament, when, with Jesus, the kingdom finally comes. The kingdom finally comes. The pattern will be the same. God's people in God's place under God's rule, but now it's not going to be a type and shadow of something better coming, but it's the real thing. It is now the true reality. It is, it is the ultimate fulfillment of what the Old Testament was pointing forward to. God is, as far as God's people, God is saving. He's still saving a people for himself, and but they are, they are as we saw. They're God's people in the new covenant are are people who are represented by their king. Who's our king? It's not Solomon. It's not any of David or his descendants who are faulty kings at best. Our king who is representing us is Jesus Christ himself. And now we stand before God based on his obedience, his perfect obedience. God's people are those who live by faith now in Jesus Christ. So we are God's people in Christ Jesus and God's place is no longer an earthly promised land. Again, Jesus said in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is building an eternal kingdom that will never fade away. Uh, and, And it is still the kingdom that he is building of God's people redeemed in Christ is still a kingdom under God's rule. First with our representative king, Jesus obeyed perfectly in his earthly life as the second Adam, right? As the true Israel. He obeyed on behalf of his people and he established in his perfect life, he established perfect righteousness before God for his people. And he bestows now on his people the gift of his spirit on them to create his life in their life. And so secondly, first First, it's a kingdom under God's rule in that Jesus himself submitted to God's rule in his earthly life. But now we ourselves who have trusted in Christ are the people under God's rule. We now, by faith, live in the power of the Holy Spirit after his will. But I've left out an important aspect of the kingdom of God as it has come to us in Jesus. And that is this, and this is important, with the coming of Jesus in his first coming, the kingdom that he brought is both already and not yet. It is already and not yet at the same time. Already, let's think about how it's already. Already, it is as Jesus said when he first came. He said the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is near you. And Paul says in Philippians chapter three, verse 20, we are now citizens by faith of that kingdom. And Colossians 1.13, he says that by faith in Christ, uh, that we have already been delivered from the domain of darkness and we have been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. So that's already happened. All those things, the kingdom is nearest when Christ came. That And, and Jesus said in the in the Beatitudes, uh He begins and ends it with this phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So we belong by faith in Christ. We belong to the kingdom now. Christ has come and with him the kingdom has come. He's our king and he's brought the kingdom. It's near us, it's in us. We belong to the kingdom now. But we also know that John says in 1 John 3, 2, that that what, what the kingdom ultimately will be has not yet appeared. It will appear in full measure when Christ returns. And think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that now we have been redeemed in Christ, but all of creation is still groaning, awaiting the fullness of redemption. But things are true now, right? The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have believed in Christ, the church is now the place of God's uh, rule and blessing, but it isn't yet. Now the whole reality. See the church, every little local church of professing believers. We are part of the kingdom now, but but we're not. It's not here fully. It's almost like we are. We belong to the kingdom. Imagine a local church that we are like a local church. We are part of the, God's kingdom now, but we're not fully there yet. It's like this local church is just an outpost or it's an embassy representing uh, the kingdom we belong to, but we're representing it in a foreign land. Think about, you know, just think about the American embassy in London, right? So uh, the, the, that the people in that building of the American embassy, they're not British. They don't belong to that country. They actually they belong to, uh, they're, they're Americans and they belong to our country but they, they, they reside right now in a foreign land and we are like that now too. We belong to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God, but, but not there in its fullness yet. We're now little outposts and embassies in, in a foreign land. So how do we put all this together? The kingdom of God was inaugurated it, it, at the first coming of Jesus. It was inaugurated. He kicked it off. It, the process began. With the first coming of Jesus, but it will be consummated uh, at His second coming. At His second coming, God's people will be complete. I mean, the, the the redeemed through all the ages will be redeemed. Right? There will be no more to come into the kingdom after that point. So God's the the people of God will be complete at His second coming, and God's place. We will be in God's place, and it won't be a partial place for us any longer. It will be the new heavens and the new earth, the permanent place of God's blessing. The earthly promised land was just a a faint little picture of this new heavens and new earth coming that we will dwell in with God as his people, and he is our God in perfect blessing uh, in the new heavens and new earth, And, uh, and, and, and think about how Revelation describes this uh, in Revelation chapter 11. Uh, I know it's Revelation 11 is in the middle of the book, but it's, it's written in circles. And so this is a description of, um, of, of the end of the age, but it's right in the middle of the book. But in Revelation chapter 11, beginning in verse 15, we read, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world is, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever and ever. Uh, so that's when when there will be no separation between uh, the fullness of the kingdom of God and the fullness of this world. This whole world will be the the kingdom of God. That's God's place, and God and in that place, as God's fully redeemed people. Uh, we will, we will enjoy God's rule over us and, and, and enjoy it perfectly with the penalty of sin removed and the power of sin removed and even the very presence of sin within us and all around us banished from, from the place and righteousness dwells perfectly. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking in other words, it's not a matter of laws we keep. Here's what he says. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what the, that's what the kingdom is a matter of. Those are all things that we experience now. They're realities for us now because of what Christ has done for us at his first coming. Right, right now, we have righteousness because of Christ imputed to us, and and we are growing in righteousness in this process of sanctification during our life, and we have joy in the Holy Spirit, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are all things we have now, but in in some ways, uh, when he comes again, when Christ comes again and consummates the kingdom that he has already inaugurated now, we will know all of those things of his kingdom in perfect measure. We will know righteousness in perfect measure because we will be perfectly redeemed. We can I mean, I am as perfectly righteous before God right now as I ever will be for all eternity Because, in one sense because I have Christ's righteousness imputed to me and you cannot improve upon that. But in my practical daily experience, the the righteousness that comes out of my own heart is still so very imperfect. But in that day when Christ comes again, all the righteousness that comes out of my heart will be perfect, perfect righteousness coming out of a perfectly redeemed heart. And, and we will have peace in more perfect measure in that day. How will, if we have peace with God now through our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5, 1, how can our peace with God, we have, think about what Paul said, we have peace with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an unshakable peace, right? You cannot improve upon that. But how in the world could any conception of that, that peace be improved? Because when, we, when, when the Lord Christ comes again, our peace will not grow in measure, but it will be a peace that we know by sight and not merely by faith any longer. And our joy in the Holy Spirit in that day we can have joy in the spirit now, but, but it, is, it is interrupted by our sins so much. And in that day, the joy in the Holy Spirit will be unbroken and unending and unbounded. That's a picture of the kingdom of God that I hope uh, I've explained clear, clearly to you. We are now God's people in God's place under God's rule now in Christ Jesus. But the full measure of those things is, and those things are real now. Christ has inaugurated it. It will come to pass in full measure, in full every full conceivable measure, but it will come in every full conceivable measure at the sec, second coming of Christ. And for that, we wait. So when we pray, your kingdom come, what are we praying for? What are we actually praying for when, when we pray that uh, prayer? When Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come. In the original Greek, the word come uh, is the first word in the phrase "Come your kingdom." In the, in, in Greek, it didn't matter. Uh, you could jumble the words all kind of up, and you could still make sense of the sentence. It, word order did not; it was not important, as important to them as it was to us. So a lot of times, when they put a word at the very beginning of the sentence, that is a word that receives the greatest emphasis. And so, the coming of the kingdom is the most uh, urgent thing in this request. It receives the en- emphasis. We desire it to come. We're, we, we're to pray for it to come. We work for it to come. How so? Let me just mention three ways very quickly. First, when we pray for His kingdom to come, first of all, we pray for it to come most fully in our own hearts. We'll talk about this more next week, um, that, that we would do His will in earth as it is in heaven. We, we work to kill our own sin. We don't neglect the means of grace given to us by Christ in His Word and in prayer and in gathering with the church, even though we're having to do it virtually right now. Um, and all those means that we take advantage of in the Word and the prayer and the church and Lord's Supper and all those things conform us and sanctify us into the image of Christ in this life. So first of all, when we pray for His kingdom to come, we pray for it to come most fully in our own hearts. But secondly, when we pray for His kingdom to come, we pray thereby for the gospel to go forth and for the church to expand into the world in places where it hasn't gone. Um, Al Mohler, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, he wrote a book on the Lord's Prayer that I commend to you. And in that book, he says, The Bible teaches that God's kingdom only comes as God's people preach God's word, which coupled with with God's spirit produces life and obedience. To use the language of Paul, God's word and spirit change the hearts of sinners in such a way that they are rescued out of the darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. And in that, I mean, that's the end quote. In that, we're reminded that in this world, there's another kingdom at work, the kingdom of Satan and the God of this world with a little G. And, and so uh, we, we're to pray and to preach to push back his kingdom and, and so, that, so that through us and through the message we proclaim, Christ can build his kingdom in this world. And we've already been promised that the gates of hell will not prevail against that. So thirdly, when we pray for his kingdom to come, we pray for the Lord Jesus to come back. We pray for the Lord Jesus to return. He is the king of the kingdom. And only he can bring that part of it about fully. As Moeller went on to say in the same book, our hope is not that the governments of this world will transform into the kingdom of God. We don't pray that America would, would turn into the kingdom of God. No earthly kingdom is the kingdom of God, but that the kingdom of God will come from heaven to earth in power and glory. I hope that that we now have a, a fuller understanding of what Jesus meant when, when he instructed us to pray, your kingdom come. And that wraps up this message, but if you have some time to pray uh, after this lesson, I hope that you will, you will pray perhaps along those lines. The kingdom would most fully come beginning in your own heart. That he would empower you by us and embolden you by his spirit to proclaim the gospel and bear witness to your neighbors. That you would pray for the Lord Christ to return so that his kingdom comes most fully for his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word and we pray that you would bring it to bear in our own hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.